This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. Uh, as, as I mentioned on The Thing, or maybe this is the first one you're listening to because you don't give a shit about The Thing, we are re-releasing two giant sci-fi franchises, or, or movies. Uh, I guess they're both become franchises now. Uh, that that both debuted the same date back in June of 1982. Uh, 40th anniversaries. They're getting creaky and old, just like us, Jim. Mm-hmm. This is Blade Runner. Also commissioned by Sean Ray, as I mentioned on the Thing podcast, uh, and and like I mentioned on the Thing, this is another classic example of why I like commissioned podcasts because I had seen Blade Runner a couple of times. You know, I'm a science fiction nerd, and I always. You know, as we mentioned in the podcast, uh, I always respected it for what it was and for what it meant at the time. But I I found it like clunky and kind of plotting and a whole bunch of stuff kind of didn't make sense. And some of the performances were flat. Uh, And and, uh, Sean recommending us watching the final cut, the director's cut, Ridley Scott's like it's very slight tweaks and nips and tucks here and there, but it just shows you what good editing can do to save a movie. <laughs> oh yeah. Because yeah, it's, it's it, very good. Oh, it, it fixes almost all my issues. Even stuff that I was like longstanding, uh, had antipathy for like the, the theory that Deckard himself was an ant, like single handed me, single handedly changed my mind mm-hmm. about, uh, Blade Runner and its place in science fiction. I think it's a, it's an amazing film, and I've enjoyed it several times since. I wouldn't recommend anyone watching a theatrical release. Oh, no, no. Watch this one for sure. This is just so... I mean, if you want to, just as a, as a curiosity, but this is the definitive version according to the guy who created it and according to uh, yours truly here. Um, 40 years young, Blade Runner is, and we talked about this film about five years ago. Uh, as I mentioned in the other podcast, some of the stuff deeper in our archive is, is harder to access because uh, our website's not the most friendly and some of our feeds aren't that, even that deep if you go back. So we're re-releasing it, spiffing it up for 40 years of celebration of Blade Runner and The Thing. Uh, they're both available right now and they both came out way back in June 1982. I hope you guys enjoy the re-release of Blade Runner. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, everybody, we're back with another Bald Move Commission podcast. This uh, commissioner was Sean Ray, who's commissioned a bunch of films in the past. And he's he uh, he, he's he's also dominating the, the, the last few uh, commission podcasts we got here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's we still got three left to, to do for him. Uh, he selected Blade Runner. 
which is a 1982 film, as you probably know. But he wanted us to see a particular cut, the final cut, which was released in 2007. This is the only director's cut that Ridley Scott actually worked on, supervised, and has endorsed as his definitive view of the movie. And this is one of the few versions of this film that I had not seen before. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I put it to you. This is, of course, directed by Ridley Scott, story by Philip K. Dick, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Hauer, and Edward Edward James Olmos. Almost. Uh, what did you think of uh, this? This you can talk about your history with Blade Runner. You can talk about your experience watching the film this time. Talk about whatever the hell you want. You're a professional podcaster. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Blade Runner is is a has been traditionally a weird movie for me because I always I guess understood thematically why it got the respect it did because it was wrestling with interesting questions and it had a a really interesting aesthetic and I thought that was kind of it because when I had watched the movie before uh it always felt messy to me it always felt like this is a movie that didn't quite live up to the standards of its director or its creators and watching the final cut movie for the version for the first time, I was blown away with how much better it is. It did not feel messy at all. It felt actually very tight. Yeah. I, I've kind of, I, you know, I talked to my blade runner 2047 and 2042. I I can't remember what the the new one is that I've always had that kind of emotionally distant, uh, relationship with blade runner a lot the same way. I feel like when I watch like ghost in the shell, Mm. like I understand why this is respected for its time. And I see the DNA that it is provided to works come after that. But on the other hand, it looks dated and there's a lot of junk mixed up ideas. And I've always had that opinion of Blade Runner because, you know, it's like this goofy thing with a maybe stilted performance by Harrison Ford. And he's got these voiceovers that are just being phoned in. And <laughs> the investigation's a bit hard to follow, but I've always admired the third act. Like there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Yeah. This number one, uh, this is probably the best looking transfer I've ever seen of Blade Runner. And it really like I was kind of shocked to kind of watch this not being distracted by like Harrison Ford's droning uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. Just how well the world holds up. Like it's extremely well designed. I do. Yeah, the the. The art direction on this is yes. amazing. Yes. Um, and so many good ideas, so many inventive set pieces, mm-hmm. and so many big ideas. I do think that um, the, the, the world design is amazing, but I think the world building is a little bit slappy or sloppy. It and, is. And but, I think, but I think it's okay because that's not the point of the movie, right? Like, the, there are a lot of logical questions that you have about the world that the movie foregoes because they're going for something bigger, right? Well, as you well know, I'm, I'm a lore whore. And when I see mm-hmm. my daddy Dom director, get out the whips, the, the, the uh, world building whips and chains, I get excited. And then he, you know, he puts them back without barely playing with them. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I got all worked up for nothing. And uh-huh. so, yeah, no, it's, it's a big deal for me, but, um, I'm just amazed at how a good, it, it, Huh. I'm just amazed at what a good edit can do to a film. And I, yeah. and I don't know why that surprises me because I've seen, you know, it t- talked about everywhere from like, you know, George Lucas's cut of Star Wars essentially being saved by an editor to mm-hmm. George Lucas saving key <laughs> scenes uh, in The Godfather uh, for Coppola. Like, I, I, I t- truly believe it. Like, when you see such a night and day difference as a theatrical release of Blade Runner, mm-hmm. same movie. 
buried in there. Yeah. But it's got a inappropriate ending tacked onto it. It's had a whole bunch of narrative and voiceover and stuff tacked onto it. Um, it's just laboring to get out and it, it, it struggles under its own weight. This, this movie, again, not perfect, but Oh my God! It I would ne- I'm never watching another version of this no, movie again. This is the definitive cut of yeah. Blade Runner in my mind. The other thing is, like I've been, and I know Sean Ray feels me on this. I've been a staunch proponent of the Deckard is not a replicant. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, you know, like because that's my first exposure to the film. I think the theatrical theatrical release really puts its thumb on the scale to uh, Deckard not being a, a replicant. This version, obviously, Ridley Scott believes he is. He really puts his thumb on the other side of of the scale. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm okay with it. Like, I don't think it's... I think this film becomes like, you know, that, that, that uh, optical illusion of like the vase or it's two people kissing. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes you can flip that as you're watching it. The picture can flip back like... That whether Deckard is a replicant or not changes a lot of the themes and feel of the movie. And sure. sometimes I can see myself flipping back and forth and seeing like, oh, well, this really changes his relationship with Sean Young. If you think of it as him being a replicant or, oh, if he's just a human, it kind of puts this flavor to it. Certainly changes the dynamics of the last fight with uh, uh, Rutger Howe or Roy. Um, what? I know this is something Sean wants us to talk about. Do you have an opinion on this and how did this film change it? And do you agree with me that Deckard being a replicant makes or breaks the film? Uh, yeah. So I think my opinion going into this, I think it's been a while since I've seen Blade Runner and, uh, it's hard for me to remember, but I think my opinion was that he was not a replicant coming out of this movie. I'm like, yeah, he's definitely a replicant that, that origami unicorn with the added scene, uh, which we assume is a memory of, of Deckard's, uh, I think says it outright. It's, mm-hmm. it's not even implied. It's just, it, yes, he is absolutely a replicant. Um, and you know, you can argue about whether Ridley Scott goes too far in stating his own opinion, but honestly, like where do you draw the line on saying, Hey, the director has the ultimate final say in this thing. Right. Cause that's the thing. Like right. you can say, all right, well the writer, cause the writer and the director in this movie Disagree. argue. Yes. yes. They, they don't, they don't have the same opinion on Deckard and, and the nature of his being. So it, ultimately, in my opinion, it comes down to the director because the director decides what makes it has the final say on what makes it to the screen and and the movie and the narrative and the message of the movie is on his head. So Blade Runner, in my opinion, in the movie, the director's opinion is he is a replicant. I agree with that. I do think the first half of the film is needlessly schizophrenic about that. Like I kept hmm. on as I was watching this this version, I kept on thinking, why is the chief of police and this detective creepy James uh almost uh figure, why are they so well, I mean like if 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 Harrison Ford is a replicant designed to hunt down blade or to hunt down replicants, as if he's a Blade Runner designed, why the fuck are they asking him permission? Why are they begging him to come out of retirement? Why are they now? Every single time I started to wonder that, there was also a like a line about, "Well, you have no choice." But mm-hmm. I'm like, why is is that what makes the is that what makes Harrison Ford so good that he thinks he's a human and he doesn't have right. any moral hangups about retiring these replicants? Uh, 
why isn't it such an inefficient way to go about designing these robots that you have to fool them into thinking they're humans so you can get their full potential out? And also, these sleaze bags, why would they go along with this system? It seems like, especially if you look at the new Blade Runner, you know, people are don't think very highly of these replicants. Mm-hmm. Why would you? Why would you bend over backwards to respect one of their feelings? Like, shouldn't someone? Shouldn't there be more instances of these guys being wry or? You know, like, like, I mean, there is with when it comes to what's his name, Bryant, I think, uh, Emmett Walsh, mm-hmm. uh, that guy treats the Blade Runners. And I thought during the thing that it during the movie that it was just simply a matter of like cops d- don't like the Blade Runners because they're doing their jobs and like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they view them as inferior. But if you look at it in the context of like Bryant knows that he's replicant and he's treating him that way. Because of that, in, instead, it kind of makes a little bit of sense, or or at least they they hint at that. Yeah, and I think he tried because, like, in in film noir works, it's very stereotypical for the detective right. to have an adversary relationship with the cops, like you mentioned. Yeah. So I feel like, in an almost too cute way, Ridley Scott keeps on hopping be- on both of those kind of like viewpoints. Um, and I hmm. don't think maybe like the, the guys that he's having do it are up to the task of the subtlety and acting that would like, I, I think that whoever Deckard's boss is, he could, I, I mean, and I, I know he's a fairly well-regarded character actor, but I think he's very good. And I don't know whether hmm. it was like ADR because it was a noisy set. And cause like, I know like, all of Harrison Ford's voiceovers in the theatrical version are the worst. Yeah, they're bad. Are the worst sort of Harrison Ford not giving a fuck or actively disagreeing with what he's having to do or just like, I want to go make my cabinets. What the fuck? I, 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 whatever it is, but I feel like some of that is creeping into those guys' baseline performances and it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't doing the job for me to hmm. really sell the whole, Oh, this is interesting. Now that I see it, and I know he's a replicant. They're treating him like a robot with barely con- concealed contempt. But if he was just a p- private dick, they'd be treating him like that. So they would, and I, I think that both—I I don't know—in my mind, that is a good thing. Um, yeah, because it kind of uses the tropes of the genre to mask right. those facts, and they, they're leaning into that. And I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think you know the first act being the question of like what is the difference between replicants and humans? And yeah, and that's a a question that they answer in the third act to my satisfaction, which is what does it matter? Mm -hmm. You know, like if you can't tell what does it matter? And you know, we've talked about this stuff at length in Westworld, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of the grandfather of those. So I, I don't know. I think the first act schizophrenia, as you called it, makes a certain amount of sense. I think I feel myself being talked into it because like, honestly, if I'm putting all my cards on the table, a lot of this hostility is left over from the original resentment or feeling like I was jerked around. Cause I've always been very like, um, anti Ridley Scott, not anti Ridley Scott. I'd pro Ridley Scott, but Mm -hmm. I also feel like, Whenever I heard him in an interview, like he kind of fucked up and wishes he he's kind of like, you know, in the same way George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have gone to fix their creations every mm-hmm. time I've seen like because the other thing is like the first director's cut was just horseshit. Yeah. Like it was labeled as a director cut and it felt very <laughs> rushed and shitty and tacked on. It turns out that was released over Ridley Scott's dead body. Yeah. And it was like a cash in on some yes, limited it, it theatrical release. Was, they absolutely did, was. Yeah. And then they tried to do another fucking director's release and it felt like like this has been a long time coming but mm-hmm. the thing that astounds me 
is that, and I don't, I don't know, this doesn't seem like it happens as much because we live in a much more transparent environment where directors have a lot more power to be like, oh, they fucked with my original vision. Yeah, yeah. But it was, a, it's breathtaking how in the 70s and 80s and probably early, like, studios would just take a film from a director and fuck with it. And then their career lived and died on that, right? Yeah. Like, oh, well, we had a tepid audience release from the audience because we just pulled a bunch of people from some mid-America mall and forced them to watch a talky science fiction film. Uh-huh. Like... They and you know like them. This movie is a thousand percent better. Just chopping off the happy ending with Sean Young and uh, 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 Harrison Ford. Absolutely, like yeah. that. That like nervous paranoia of finding the 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 aluminum unicorn and hearing the. Uh, uh, the the almost characters kind of voice uh, echoing and like that sense mm-hmm. of paranoia and how they'll always be hunted now. Yeah. And him like rushing to the door and shutting it and the film goes black on that. So much fucking better. So much better. The film's already like a million times better and then you strip off the, the wooden voiceovers <laughs> and you cut it a little bit tighter. Um, it, it's just so much better. So much better. Um, yeah. It's funny too because like the voiceover wasn't something Ridley Scott wanted. And those final, that final sequence with right. like the floaty camera through the clouds right. and mm-hmm. the driving stuff wasn't even shot mm-hmm. by, by under Ridley Scott's direction. Right, right. It was leftover footage from the Shining shoots. No shit. Stanley Kubrick's footage, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His helicopter stuff. So, Interesting. Like, that's... That's such a weird fuck you kind of thing to do to a director who right. you, you hired to put in charge of the vision of this film. Right, right. And to take that out of his hands is is crazy. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like if it happened now, it would be allowed in public debates, and people yeah. would demand to see the director's cut on Blu-ray, and people we could like. But now, but but that's what I'm saying. Like I remember thinking when I saw the differences. Like I don't even know if I. Like, I've heard about, like, hey, it makes a huge difference to strip out Deckard's voiceover. I'm like, but doesn't that take away its film noir? Like, that's a film noir thing. Like, right. having the detect the hard-boiled detective saying tough stuff over it. But it's so much better. It's, it's so, so much better so much it. better. And I still got the f- the feel of the, the noir, right? Right. Like the detective noir stuff. Right. Like, like you, you don't, don't need it. It didn't need to be slavishly noir. It's just in its, yeah. its sensibility and the get-ups that they had in Sean Young and just the gritty, grimy, futuristic feel of the seedy underbelly of the city. That's what yeah. sold it on noir. Um, and, like, that's the thing. But I, I do feel that a little bit of, like, hackle of my old viewpoint raising, you know, so so, yeah, it's funny because I will say that um, the first time I watched Blade Runner, I really didn't enjoy the experience. It felt mm-hmm. like I was going to school. Like, okay, this is an important film. Yeah. I see why it's important. I see why people watch this in the 80s and lost their shit. But, like, this has been replaced by superior works. Every single t- time I've watched it, I've liked it a little bit better. And now this version just takes the cake. Um so I Sean I would I cut off Sean here in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted us to watch the final cut, which released in two thousand seven. He says this is my favorite film of all time. Having said that, don't be afraid to criticize it. This is a science fiction neo noir masterpiece that I can watch anytime and still be mesmerized. Ford gives a performance that is very different from his charismatic Han Solo or Indiana Jones, but I think it's perfect for a man whose job it is to hunt down synthetic humans. Production design of the Bradbury Apartments, Tyrell Corporation, Deckard's Apartments, the costumes, sets, lighting, music. 
and so on is unique and done in such elegance. There are moments I forget I'm watching a film. I'm utterly pulled into the world and Ridley Scott's depiction of future Los Angeles as a filthy, overpopulated, rain-soaked hellhole. But he shoots it so beautifully, becomes something else entirely. Sean has a lot of other thoughts and questions and even some thoughts on the sequel, but we will get that after we have our full review of the film. Um, I want to talk about all of the things that he mentions. Yeah. So. Let's, 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 you want to start with Ford's performance? Uh, sure. I'll talk about like all of the characters and actors. I think uh, he's right about Harrison Ford. It's, it's a different performance, which is not something I'm used to seeing from, although I would say this is, yeah, this might be his most different performance. Cause I mean, even thinking back to like American graffiti and stuff, he's still like that charismatic, charismatic, kind of rogue sort of thing. I mean, he's still Harrison Ford. Harrison yeah. Ford, by all account, is a deeply private weirdo. But when he goes out in public and smiles, people want to be his friend. I'm like, that must be his curse. He yeah, yeah. hates everyone, <laughs> but he's fucking Harrison Ford, so everyone wants to be him and have beers with him and have sex with him. I feel like this, Harrison Ford is the embodiment of the hero's journey, right? Like, he's so fucking reluctant to get into this whole thing. Like, he was a carpenter. He didn't yeah. really... He fucking built stuff with his that hands. Makes he wasn't really that interested in getting into acting, That's but it that, kind of fell into his lap. That humility is what yeah. makes him hotter, man. And I'm telling you what, Harrison Ford is fucking a young. Is there a better looking man than young Harrison Ford? He is so smoking mm-hmm. hot in this film. Like, and I, I realized mean, he's, he's a good looking man for sure. As I was realized that like. I, I started realizing growing up with him in like Blade Runner and uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Uh, and he even was, a you know, in his later years, an action hero in his own right and Air Force One mm-hmm. and all the Jack Ryan shit like Harrison Ford. I kind of think is subconsciously my masculine physical ideal. <laughs> OK, yeah, that I've tried to live up to him all now made a sad mockery of it obviously mm-hmm. i've i've taken that ideal <laughs> and i have uh like, like uh sauron in the lord of the rings twisted and corrupted it into this freakish mockery that i prayed around as but like god damn harrison ford is even when he's being kind of a prick and he's a big asshole in most of this film uh he's just extremely charming and handsome and he is maybe one of the biggest movie stars of all time yes he has some of some of the most respected beloved franchises under his belt right and and you know he owes that largely to lucas and spielberg but i think like low-key he's maybe the biggest movie star on the planet i mean that i like because tom cruise has a lot of big ones but they're not big like these are big like like harrison ford is big indiana jones is iconic harrison ford in as han solo is iconic yeah and and deckard is iconic yeah exactly he's like in the the like john wayne paul newman yeah uh, robert redford like he's already in he's already gotten into the pantheon where tom cruise still feels like he's trying to hustle because i mean he's got thing. those memorable characters like maverick is a good character but like tom cruise is not everyone's cup of tea for there sure there is yeah. no cup in which harrison ford's tea would not be accepted <laughs> that's probably true yeah. like like harrison ford comes up to the bar and says hey buddy do you're like you fucking asshole get away from me nobody no. says that there are people i don't people, want your scientology bullshit there Mr. are people Ford. That, no, that, 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 that sprightly tom cruise pops up to them and starts talking about dianetics yeah. you know and I, they like put a cover on mike ermintrout would belly up to the bar with harrison ford for sure because he is harrison yeah i mean so he's just his his appeal is universal like it's so easy Absolutely. to want to be him to imagine to be him imagine you're with him like 
he's he's kind of like um i don't know he's he's a little keanu reeves like that he's such a enigma yeah that you can kind of hang whatever kind of ideals mm-hmm. or psychopathy that you want on him yeah um that said what did you make of the scene because this is the thing when i watched it right before the sequel that i totally forgotten <laughs> oh god i know the, what scene, the you're scene gonna talk about. where he has a sexually charged encounter with Sean. She he he turns her no into a yes is the only way I can I can describe it. Uh, That's a really uncomfortable scene, and I've always looked at it from the view of Deckard as a human, knowing that she's a robot, knowing that she's previously been kind of like this uh, deluded slave, and it felt feels very sadistic. Mm-hmm. Watch him and thinking that he too is a replicant and might be might be cottoning to that idea like it seems like it's an acting out of his own Hmm. lack of free will and choice yeah like this is us this is that but i'm not saying obviously it makes it all right it just completely transformed my gut reaction to that scene from like well just this is he's just using her like a fucking sex toy and she has no agency at all to neither of them have agency he might be forced 30 minutes from now to hunt her down and kill her and he won't be able to say no uh-huh. but maybe he can't i mean I, what, what do you think i don't know i mean the the thing that i was feeling during this scene is i think that 1982 is telling me this is sexy 2018 is telling me this is very much not right and and I was torn between like, is this supposed to be a sexy, seductive scene of a man taking charge and a woman who does actually, you know, want this relationship? Or is this supposed to be a very scary moment? And I, I couldn't help but come down on the scary side. Well, yeah, no. And that's the thing is like, there's a difference. Like I, I imagine there would be a lot of people that would fantasize about being in that situation because of the danger and because it is scary and because he is so powerful. Um, and that's fine for as far as fantasies goes and some kind of consensual relationship, but just physically blocking a woman from leaving your apartment yeah. and, you know, kissing her. And then when she pulls away, physically restraining her and kissing her again and making her say this is OK. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fucking dark shit. It is. Yeah. And I think that was just the 80s. So you don't think that Ridley Scott, because that's what I was trying to think is like maybe Ridley Scott was making a point about their essential bondage to the system because he deeply believed it was a, he, the, this guy was a robot that knew he's a robot and knew she's a robot. I don't know. Hmm. It, it could be because even, even if you want to say, well, there is no fundamental difference between robots and humans. Right. I could see that affecting the psyche of somebody who thinks that they're a human finding out that they're a robot or even considering that option and that being very much scary thing to them and them acting out Uh in inappropriate ways. And this would certainly be that. Right. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. By the way, the fact that we're debating what this meant in 1982 and whether it was sexy or not, hashtag rape culture just just saying yeah uh, <laughs> I, I do not condone what happens right. on that on the screen right right here but, and now but, but in 1982 what was going through the heads of the people making this movie yeah right um okay what else about harrison ford um i, I don't know that i have much more i i will say this uh this is something other that i i think he does with keanu reeves is keanu reeves is like 
an average guy's level of like, yeah, I'm a best day. Maybe I could pull that off. Like, you know, when I was when I was 20, uh, yeah. when I was in my mid 20s, I could have got with Sandra Bullock and stopped that bus or I could have jacked in with Morpheus and that Harrison Ford, when he's escaping from Roy <laughs> climbing that building, he yeah. does such a great like he's not Nathan Drake in it. No, he's not just like bounding up at ten, like he is like like peak average man physical ability jacked with adrenaline with his fingers broken and he's just just barely making it. And somehow that is so it's, it's kind of like Jason Bourne driving around and Volkswagen rabbit. Uh, it's way more exciting than if he had like a Dodge charger or whatever. For sure. Like it's, it's the perform. It's the, it's the performance envelope that makes it exciting because he just, he's just barely doing it. Yeah. But yet you could also imagine like maybe I, that's, that's part of the fantasy. It's like, he's not, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, just ripping a dude in half. He's just trying to survive and trying to get to the next minute of his life. It's him and Roy are in. Um, I mean, that's what make that scene work. It's it's Roy about to die and losing control of his body, but being mm-hmm. obviously physically superior yeah. uh, with Deckard, perhaps more human. Like, yeah, let me ask you about that. The physicality of Harrison Ford in this movie doesn't it sort of betray that maybe the writer did not think it was that's what I'm saying that he he was a replicant that's the other like not only is it like I don't think they nailed the balance between his human handlers like the the ball busting or maybe just uh, android racism I don't think they nailed that right that's the other thing like Mm -hmm. Deckard's physical performance and yeah like what if you made someone to hunt down blade runners why the fuck would you make them inferior to the most combat capable version you have right maybe it's because you'd afraid you're afraid to lose track of them and then it's like you know it's like that uh simpsons problem like you've got your overrun by uh rats so you get snakes and then finally you get a if you give a mouse a cookie a rare meat-eating uh gorilla from the mountains of africa and they just freeze to death in the winter like like what do you do to stop the blade runner who's the hulking out you know yeah uh but yeah no i i thought the same thing like the other thing that and this got this is my larger issue the world building like when someone tells me that these are indistinguishable from humans and then they dip their fingers in molten lava or super uh-huh. cool and there's no like fuck me you can tell that's you can tell there's no way that's made out of the same fucking material do you know how i know because if i stuck my hand in there that is indistinguishable from humanity it would combust or yeah. it'd freeze uh-huh. like don't fucking tell me you can't put this guy into an x-ray machine and tell that he's <laughs> not a fucking replicant right come on now for sure the, the the construction of them is is much different than humans it's it's the Battlestar galactica thing like we have no way to distinguish these from normal humans but somehow they're able to beam themselves through subspace so no i think the movie came up with the worst possible way for the replicants to prove how badass they are and also to like show that they're replicants and right. they're not humans because right. Yeah, they, they try and walk that line of, like, these are so close to humans that humans can't tell. And also the line of they're super-powered humans who can do anything. Yeah. Uh, it it does start to stretch the bounds of credibility. And I think, actually, Westworld uh, kind of works better in that regard. Absolutely. I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. And now, with the exception of that core in their in their heads, well, like, right. that would be super easy to detect. But mm-hmm. but everything else about like their their body and their physical makeup works better than this movie. Yeah, like, if the replicants were peak human ability, like, and I'm talking peak, like, full of adrenaline, you know, that would still be a terrifying opponent to have. Yeah. Someone that could go full, or someone that can ignore pain, or mm-hmm. what would be, like, 
or shock. So they can, you know, non-fatal, but otherwise devastating, incapacitating, injured, they could ignore. But they can't just... And that's the thing, like, you could have essentially the same scenes of, like, Ray traipsing naked through a freezer because... He's not in danger of freezing, but he's not. He's able to just ignore the fact that you know he's cold. Yeah. Um. I I just felt like that was another part where they didn't really think through the world building. Um. But then again, the state of the art for that shit has moved along. I mean, there there's been a bunch more android secret identity type movies, so they've they perfected it. But I just thought that some of that stuff is lazy in the in in, in throughout the film. Let me use the the cloak of of talking more about this uh, idea of Deckard being or not being a replicant to talk about how creepy Edward James almost is in this movie. And he's, <laughs> he's his fucking eyes and that mustache, the mustache, the facial hair, the Fu Manchu or whatever he's got going on. Is he doing like a yellow face? Is he? Is he, I felt like there's a little Maybe? bit of big trouble, little China. Like he'd be cackling in a store about some kind of uh, ancient sect <laughs> of electrical warriors. Now that you say that, you might be right about that. I didn't get that. That, right. Which, maybe, you know, you know, it's eighties. He's trying to work mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, this isn't short circuit. I'm not wanting to crucify a right. guy, but I felt like it's a little creepy Asian mystic <laughs> stereotype. It, it was very vague though. So I think they got away with that. in the second act. <laughs> right. Um, well, they had that guy in there too. If you right, really want to go there. True. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like maybe that's the thing. Like, we can't hire two wizened Asian old dudes. We get, let's, <laughs> right. let's make up uh, James, yeah, it's like you get get this guy. But out here. what they did with his eyes was super creepy. Those contacts, those all like yeah, like whitish blue. He's almost unrecognizable. Know. Yeah, it's freaky. Um, so yeah, kudos for looking like a creepy, decrepit dude. And <laughs> you know, it's like I also thought like maybe he's a he's a Blade Runner too. Like he's he a retired is. one. Yeah. So I think I think in the movie he is a blade runner which to me raises the question why do they have a blade runner looking after a blade runner if not if that blade runner is not a replicant right like i almost thought ever james almost character is there to keep deckard on track Hmm. keep him from like discovering that he's a replicant until he finally tells so him that have, he's a replicant at two, the end. Are Blade Runners paired with either so I, I'm prepared to accept that the almost character is a replicant. Okay. Do you think he's a human? Maybe he's a replicant that wanted to tell the other replicant that he is a replicant well, <laughs> at the ooh, end. Ooh. Like he's a He's a resistant part of it. Cause like, you know, by, like, the, by, yeah. by the second movie, there's a whole resistance underground that right. these guys built around the religion of Deckard and, uh, Rachel. Um, so maybe, I don't know. They, they never quite go into it far enough for me to say. Right. But it's another one of those things where it's kind of interesting and like him being creepy as either like a severely wounded first generation human version of a blade runner or, mm-hmm. you know, as just a, a creepy constructed, when like it, it it works it works uh a few other characters i want to talk about right daryl hannah um i always whenever i saw cameron howe from hold catch fire mm-hmm. i always related her to this character because mm, right. they, they look somewhat similar sure um but daryl hannah plays this pris character uh as seductively intimidating Mm -hmm. and also very creepy right like there's there's something in the performance that says this is a very disturbed replicant yeah and i don't know if it comes down to simply the costuming 
um, when she's got, you know, the black stripe across her eyes and right. pale white body paint. But yeah, I don't know. Something came across as very creepy. And I think the performance is a big part of that. I love her doing when she puts the black stripe on her eyes. Like mm-hmm. that's so fucking iconic and so cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she's supposed to be uh, a pleasure droid. I think that's. One it, one of the things they're playing with is you've made these, let's say, same way in Westworld, you've made these superior beings mm-hmm. that are capable of flights of fancy and emotion, uh, and then you have them do the worst jobs. You for like it's not like oh I feel sexy I'm going to be a sex worker I'm going to be a sex worker but no she was made to do that yeah she, and and Roy is made to be a combat drone and fuckface McGee whatever the tur- the the guy who overact about mothers is made to be like a construction like you know menial and like he's even given the the a menial mind for it which that also was kind of a sloppy piece of world building. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's just the horror of being a, a, a thinking of uh, a creature and know that like, there's no way out. Like you're not going to graduate from this. You're going to, and then you find out that you've got a pre-programmed six year lifespan. Mm-hmm. You've got memories <laughs> that were designed to control you and essentially impart basic programming to you, but they're not your own. I mean, that's the thing. Like a lot of this shit's understated. Like yeah. you have to watch the movie multiple times to appreciate all the pathos of the villains. The first time they're yeah. almost like slightly more urbane and witty Terminators. Absolutely. Yeah. But you, you identify, have to really think about it. You identify with them more and more as you watch it. They become much more sympathetic. Absolutely. And especially the Rachel character. Like I was looking at, at her character throughout this film, um, and, and just the idea that when she goes to Deckard and she says, you think I'm a replicant, don't you? Uh, j- just that core. And I know this applies to some areas of people's lives, but it doesn't typically apply to like the core of what they are to be ashamed, you know, to mm. have society telling you that you should be ashamed of what you are at your mm. very core, your very, very physical makeup. Right. In this case, you know, you're a replicant. You're not a human. Humans never have to struggle with that idea of being a human might be a bad thing. Right. Whereas replicants do in this right. universe. So right. uh, I, I've, I felt a very powerful sort of uh, sadness in that regard. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's why these are, are great morality plays, because it's essentially anytime you've got a thing that by all intents and purposes presents as human, but you're denying the humanity of, you know, then you're it's it's a hop, skip and a jump to talking about, you know, race relations, uh, uh, you know, yeah, se- sexual sure. mores and orientations and uh, like all that kind of stuff, because we have these things that work undeniably human, but we're treating them as less than because why again? And, uh, and we're as humans given the privilege of never having to question whether you being a human is a good or bad thing. Right. Yeah. Like if you're born the default, you never have to wrestle with us or something wrong with me. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is like, in my experience, the human existence is asking a question. What's wrong with me? I can't even imagine what it's like if you're, if society is adding on to that, just the thing that's fucking with everybody. The whole idea that society as a whole kind of things, uh, you're, 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 you're not all there. You're not right. Like it's, yeah, yeah it's gotta, it's gotta be terrible for sure. And so I, I powerfully felt, uh, the, the plight of Rachel's character. And mm-hmm. I guess by extension, all of the, the replicants, what is, why was Rachel made? Hmm. I mean, that's the thing is that's like, a good question is Tyrell, 
Because like the guy right below Tyrell uh, is played by you know um, Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl, whatever. It's, uh, Sebastian, yeah, his name? Sebastian. Yeah. Um, he just seems like he is either simple-minded or he's he's so like set apart from his own time because he's got that Methuselah disease mm-hmm. that he just doesn't I don't know like he just seems like he's very childlike he doesn't and, and in fact I thought it was a really interesting point to give him that this disease because it's something that allows him to empathize with the 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 synth the sense and the other thing yeah. is I always thought that their relationship was more menacing in this version of the film and kind of like in my frame I was watching it I felt like he didn't have he wasn't really afraid of Roy or Pris until Roy just just smacked <laughs> Tyrell. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. Um and before, like I had always thought like when Roy and Pris were kind of being a little menacing towards him that he was scared and I didn't get that this time, or at least not as much. Yeah. No, I feel you. I I thought the same and I was surprised not to see it. And I also thought like that the other thing is that I thought Roy and Pris were kind of okay with him. Like there's mm-hmm. one point when I think things could have gone wrong because he was essentially not going to live up to you know, kind of like if if it's like, well, you say you're, you know, you have affinity for uh, for us and you don't have a problem with our love, but you're not going to help us. Like they just kind of essentially made him feel bad about his default, you know, like save his own ass presentation. But it didn't yeah. feel particularly menacing. I don't know. No, not nearly as much as I remembered it. Feeling. Right. Which I don't know if that's editing or if I don't I don't know if it's just like uh like I said, the, the difference in experience in the film this way was uh, shocking, shocking. I'm still coming to grips to it. Uh, I want to talk about one other character before we get to what I view as like the the main show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about Rudger Hauer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's 1982. This movie is made along with a lot of other movies featuring little people. Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> Hollywood in this era, I think, was obsessed with casting little people as like weird creatures. This era? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it happens nearly as much anymore. No, I'm talking about like go back to the oh, dawn. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I mean. Essentially before CG. Yeah, right. Uh, they, they, they would cast. And I don't know if it's out of necessity or whether it's some kind of disrespect, but uh like I just couldn't shake the feeling. Like, oh, you need a weird, you need a weird clown monster. Mm-hmm. Oh, cast a little person. And you need like a group of essentially Jawas salvaging parts off right. of Deckard's car. Calling the little people. Like it felt a little weird and gross. I wonder how little, like, if I was a little person, how because like, man, that's a complicated thing because you want work. Like, for example, right now it's very uh, in the social conscious that if a straight person, uh, a straight cis actor tries to play a trans character, they're like, you know, that there are like lots of trans men and women trying to get jobs in Hollywood and they're not and, and they perhaps can't play a conventional part. So you're taking these from them, too. But like. You know, I imagine like, you know, like Dobby from Harry Potter. It's a weird little dude. He's entirely CGI. That took a job from somebody, though. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I wonder if there is a little bit like, yeah, these aren't great jobs. And maybe I get tired of playing gnomes and gremlins and whatnot. But I was working and now I'm not. Now there's no place for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, there's a uh, Warwick Davis actually does a TV show. Right. Uh, fuck, I can't think of the name of it. It's with Ricky Gervais. Yeah, 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 I know what you're talking about. I can't remember either. I've watched the whole thing, and it's actually really good. It's a it's an interesting commentary on being a little person in society, and it's specifically in Hollywood. 
right. and kind of what that means to him and and how I guess he reconciles those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a comedy, so yeah, yeah, you know, it's it has the potential to offend, it, but. Warwick Davis is very, I guess, involved in those kinds of issues. Right. And then that show's good. Uh, and finally, I want to talk about Rudyard Hauer. Um, Roy, the Roy Batty character is another iconic one. You know, as much as Deckard in this movie is iconic, uh, Roy, Rudyard Hauer probably makes this movie for me. Yeah. Uh, th- there's an intensity and an intimidating factor to his performance. Uh, but also you become deeply sympathetic by the end of the movie for his character. Yeah. And uh, you can't discount the physicality of his, of his performance too, because yeah. he does look like, like, like if someone said that he's playing Apollo and some kind of Greek thing, you'd be totally believe it. He's, he's, uh, very fine featured. He's got beautiful gold hair. He's got a fantastic body. He looks like somebody. He looks like a, a, something that's physically perfect, right? Yeah, the visual of him running down that hall, like skipping yes. down the hall yes. uh, in in his underwear, uh, was a very like. I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's not quite otherworldly, but it does have this weird off kilter feeling to it that says i'm something other than human and it's just the way he moves i guess yeah that really sells it yeah no i i totally agree with that assessment there is something there there, there is something about it um roy's character in this third act reminds me of a character of like a julie Taymor. um production like she's the director of the lion king she's also done like titus and a bunch of but she's known for like stuff that is freaky and fluid and beautiful i guess um hmm. or very arresting and and like and and, and gothic's not the right word but and and him running through and with the spike through his hand and and yeah. the like Pris's blood uh on like like war paint like there is something extremely primal mm-hmm. like he could be running through a uh he could be a monster running through a, a dark ages forest in in, in Europe or he could be yeah. running through this abandoned building in L A it's the sa- same kind of archetypal primal Frankenstein type of character mm-hmm. um and I'm not sure. You know, that's that's a great way to compare like performances for things like, you know, try to pretend like, you know, who could you cast that would that would embody that exact same thing. And with him, with like a lot of the main characters here, um, I think a lot of people could have done what Sean Young did because she just had to look beautiful and porcelain and perfect. Um, I don't, I, I, and I, I don't think a lot of people could have done this things that like Daryl Hannah did, Rutger Howard did, and, uh, uh, Harrison Ford did in this movie. Yeah. And in my mind, it, it makes the, the tone of the third act. Yes. Uh, cause I, like, I need to be truly terrified of this mm-hmm. man, but I also need to be sympathetic to his ultimate plight. And, both the the plot, the directing, the cinematography, and most importantly, the acting in those scenes really carry it for me. Right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I will say that, like, this show has so many big ideas. Like, there's a guy designing eyeballs in, like, a frozen tank room, and he's, like, that never leaves, so he's just wearing this, like, warming suit. And, like, there's other, mm-hmm. you know, scandals about, uh, like, like underground organ stuff. And I'm, like, I, I kept thinking, because this is all set in, like, 2018, 2016. I'm, like... I kind of feel like I'm I kind of feel like I'm ripped off because our future is is way way dumber and more boring. <laughs> That's like in my like I, I got to look at my I, notes I for think this. Of, yeah. I, I think of like the political scandals of 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 fucking Blade Runner where you're talking mm-hmm. about artificial humans being sent off planet to work in mines yeah. and fight robot wars and the, and, and the interstellar gates and like all sorts and, of and, shit. And yeah. like in like like illegal cloned eyeball trades and stuff uh, and we've got this stupid shit. <laughs> this is the stupid <laughs> shit that we fight about? No, they it's totally Totally overestimated the ambition of humanity, Fuck right? Yes, yes, they did. Like they're talking about, like you said, all the off-world colonies, and then like we're here, like getting people, seeing if we can get our 19th century people movers to drive themselves, right? And like, and and talking online with each other, right? <laughs> Arguing about stupid shit, like what what's the best version of Blade Runner, for instance? What's Blade or like <laughs> even like stuff like you know how people should be allowed to live their fucking lives, like. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, bring on, let someone invent AI. Let's, let's kick this into high gear. I'm so fucking tired of, of, like you said, debating 19th century shit. I want, I, I, I want like maybe a dystopia to, to, to at least like, <laughs> at least can I, can it be cool? Can, can I look outside and be like, hey, you know what? From a certain, it's, it's, it's a hellscape. This, the city, this Cincinnati is a hellscape I'm living in, but it's visually interesting to look at. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I do want to talk about how they really nailed just L.A. in 2018. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. L.A. is a hellhole. Right. They nailed it's, that. It's just part. going to get smoggier. Uh huh. It's just going to get, yeah. Some, but, at some point, it revert, the trend reverses and it gets right, rainier. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Is the ice caps going to the sky or something? That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that they really fucking get wrong. Well, uh-huh. Several things, but the one one of the things I want to talk about is miniaturization because they don't and and like UI developments in general because they don't do flat panels. Everything is these fucking analog knobs and buttons and they just fucking whiffed on the idea that everything is going to get smaller and faster mm-hmm. and sleeker. Mm-hmm. And they just went with chunky. They went with like the star Wars aesthetic. Yeah. It's funny. Cause uh, Sean sites is one of his favorite scenes, Deckard's enhanced scene. <laughs> and like that just plays to me as almost parody at yeah. this point. Like this guy just, first of all, I don't think the investigation is very good or compelling. It's like he finds a thing that might be yeah. a fish scale, but no, it's a lizard scale. And he goes to the lizard guy and he just shakes him by the collar. And that guy tells him to go here. And then that guy leans on him. It's like, 
it I didn't feel smart at any time and like that enhanced scene like I'm that must have blown people away the idea that like you yeah, could do yeah. this forensic investigation just by looking at a photo like it's so but like NCIS and all that other shit has just ruined it and made it into a parody so like a 15 minute slow scene of Harrison Ford saying pen left 90 degrees stop midline focus is very slow yeah it's like oh my god I fucking get it so and like I could see a way where that technology could work in the future like if you have extremely high resolution captures that you're running all the time because you've got infinite storage apparently uh okay or I mean even just taking a photo like what if it was not like 4k or 8k what if it was 600 million k right then right. maybe you could get to like the enhance where it can zoom way in and be right. pixel accurate and still viewable. And you can navigate around the objects because that's the other thing. Is like, oh, wasn't yeah. Part at some of point it. Like, he does like shift because I know you can do that with like there's certain cameras that can yeah. like do par- like parallax and stuff and allow you to move around in different dimensions. But but it takes like multiple cameras and that um, kind of thing. but like I did like so there's some futurology that doesn't work in this movie, some world building that doesn't. Um, and like you contrast that to like the matrix where like you can't really accuse it of miniaturization because they got fantastic shit. They got mundane shit and they kind of mix it all together and kind of like a magical alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the one part of the world building I really liked is like the Voight comp test. Like okay, that yeah. like that, if you if you do have an artificial being that you can't tell the difference, but like there are like you can find cracks in like exploits in their embedded memories or whatever. I thought that was super cool. Yeah, and the, I guess the way I read it is they're looking for the emotional cues that humans produce that the replicants can't reproduce. Right. Yeah, is that yeah, right? yeah. Like they're trying to provoke an uh, an inappropriate emotional reaction or a, yeah. a emotional reaction that doesn't match up with the physiology. Um, right. And like, you know, that's why they tell it that um, Rachel's impressive because usually you can tell 20 to 30 questions. It took over 100. Even Decker then was, I think, pretty sure. Yeah. Um, Probably because her eyes glowed orange. That's a dead giveaway. (laughs) That doesn't help. Although Edward James almost. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Did you notice? Because I I thought the last version of this film I watched, there was a scene where Harrison Ford eyes briefly glowed. And I looked for it in this one, but mm. I was also taking notes sometime and I, I didn't see it because I thought um, I was kind of outraged when I saw that because I'm like, well, that's just giving the ghost away because like every single other replicant we met in the series, their eyes flashed that gold co- color, which I thought was mm. super cool. Like that shot of the owl is, yes. is really striking. Yes. Yes. And the, the shot of Rachel where it's like in the background, you uh-huh. can see lights coming in the windows yeah. and it's kind of drowning the screen in white for a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of beautiful filmmaking, too. Uh, the other couple of things I thought were silly in retrospect, uh, Atari being like a major brand and <laughs> yeah, TDK I, I saw and the like these thing, uh-huh. d- huge like parts of the city being designed after like Atari logos and shit. It's, I mean, you're you're not wrong that we are essentially ran by mega corporations. You just it's got not the Atari. Wrong. Yeah, they <laughs> weren't the survival of the fittest. No, and then finally the one in my mind that's the most glaring, obvious flaw in the futurology of this movie is smoking. Yes. Everyone is smoking. Everyone is smoking indoors. In LA, you people, program people robots really, to smoke. <laughs> right. <laughs> what the fuck? But people really don't smoke. Like, smoking is not going to be a thing. Like, maybe vaping will be a thing. Right. But smoking is dead, as smoking far as I can tell, become, in America. Smoking will become like some kind of hipster thing where you roll your own tobacco and it won't have. Sure. It's like it, it, I, it, like but I it won't be a, a populist thing. No. I, I do think, although I don't know, because like, 
I've said that before on certain societal trends and like, you know, uh, you know how to get the young people to rebel, tell them that something's not cool. Like, you know, that the adults don't think something's cool. Yeah, that's why everybody's vaping and dangerous. Their mom and dad hate it. I feel like vaping's not anywhere where it was in the last two or three years either. Like I used to see people uh, blowing clouds all the time, but I don't know. Maybe the maybe they're they're like we figured it out and people are just taking it to the smoke stuff that it, the smoke places I don't see anymore. But I actually I find it hard in uh, the yeah. modern day to find people who are smoking. Yeah, no, you totally. have to seek them out. Whereas in this, it's depicted as just being everywhere. Right. Um. I really liked the shot where uh, Decker gets his first kill against an android, which is where he kills the snake dancer. Uh huh. I really thought it was arresting her death sequence because like it was a very dehumanized like like um, you know a lot of times you see a person get shot and they're like you know they fall down and they're dead here they filmed her like like uh, she's a deer in the woods sprinting from the hunter she gets shot she's like scrambling to her feet trying to make it trying to make it and by like turning like like i felt like by filming this in a very dehumanized way where she was just like a a wounded animal terrified trying to get away it actually weirdly humanized her Mm -hmm. like anytime you see people being dehumanized it like moves you to like the the empathy and i thought that was interesting the same thing with like when pris shot she reminded me of like a bug that had been sprayed by spray and like it was so weird and like it was super weird yeah it was like just just that fucking crazy performance and to the point where it like it believably rattled like like harrison Gate performance like that was rattling him you know mm-hmm. uh of course that by that time that was like the third replicant he'd killed and like do do you think deckard knows that he's a replicant by the end of the movie yeah i, do I, I think that's what that nod is if 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 you buy the interpretation which i think i'm coming around to then 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 yeah and i i think that I think he kind of cottons onto it somewhere between the death of Pris and, and the death of Roy. Yeah. Um, I think so. So, uh, but yeah, and I, I thought that was really cool. His confirmation. I thought the toy house fight was super cool. Like Pris hiding amongst all those weird robot toys. Mm-hmm. Um, and Deckard kind of sneaking around trying to find her. And, you know, when she starts twisting his head, like I believe that she could tear his head off. Um, yeah. maybe that's what you're supposed to believe is like, even though Decker doesn't know he's superhuman that like a normal human, she would have ripped his head off and she couldn't, hmm. couldn't his, I, I don't know. Could be. Yeah. Um, uh, I love when he finally gets down to fighting Roy and like Roy does that as, that as a cool scene where he grabs his gun through the wall and breaks his fingers and then he starts howling. Uh-huh. That's like him stripping down naked and chasing <laughs> Deckard through this this abandoned building, howling at the top of his lungs is so fucking freaky and such a good use of this character. Yeah. Uh, it's so damn gothic and Shakespearean. I love it. I fu- I love everything. I love everything about from the moment Decker gets to uh, Sebastian's floor and starts going through the toy house. Like this movie is damn near flawless from that point on. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then there's also like it's so funny because we just played uh, Heavy Rain, the robot edition. Uh, well, right. Detroit becoming Detroit. Detroit becoming Detroit human, Rock yeah. City becoming. Uh-huh. Uh, there is a scene that is a complete homage to Blade Runner where they go into the pigeon apartment. There's that ruined apartment. There's just pigeons and pigeon shit everywhere. There's like that's almost, I think, hmm. exactly laid out the same as that scene where Roy gets his pigeon that he adopts. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but no, I thought that was cool. And then. Uh, 
you know, what do you say about the final soliloquy that they give Rutger Hauer here? Yeah, I mean, I have uh, a lot of lines that I enjoyed. Uh, but yeah, the tears, tears and rain that that's soliloquy is that you're talking about well even before that there's, there's this thing about there's, it's quite an experience to live in fear that's yeah. what it's like to live as a slave which I think is what you're supposed to I almost wish that was the the voiceover you heard before Deckard flees from the apartment because that would really really set the the, the, the mood but that's what yeah. like that's kind of like the watchword that all of these robots that that rebelled at once kind of have that like you know living in fear is living as a slave and and even mm-hmm. if they were to extend their life that would still they'd still have to be live living under fear and living under being hunted yeah for sure that's a great one. But yeah, tears, tears and rain. Let's, let's talk. Go, 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 man, go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a story of the last of his kind dying, right? Right. I mean, at least in his mind, right? Because um, you know, earlier he tells Pris like we're the last two. Right. She gets killed. He logically assumes I'm the last one. Right. Uh, it's. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I guess it should be sadder than it is because I look at that and I go, well, you're not actually the last one, right? I think there are actually two more left. And then if, if you add on Blade Runner 2049, we know that these things are going, don't have a limited lifespan anymore uh, and also are going to reproduce. So I got a more of a melancholy from a death of an individual. And there's like, um, cause we just talked, we just did an empire business where I talked about, um, Terry Gross's interview with Maurice Sendak, uh, the the mm-hmm. author of Where the Wild Things Are, and that's one of the things he hit in that interview because he was close to death and he doesn't believe in an afterlife. And he's talking about like just being kind of general sad that like all these beautiful life experience and these friendships and relationships will become what when you die? Nothing. Like the, the like Rick Roy saying that I've I've lived this incredible life that's like. Mm-hmm you know, you could write like novels about and there all these incredible things I've seen. And I love how they're just nonspecific, but cool. So like right. ships burning off the shoulder of Orion. That's, I, I feel like I've seen that book cover. I've seen that painting uh-huh. without having actually seen it and, and, and sea beams glittering and the whatever. Um, just like, yeah, these are like, that's also a commentary about like, you know, all wars in human history have been fought by humanity. And like, so you always have like, you can never shake a communal sense of like the horror of war or the glory of war or whatever, mm-hmm. like an idea of like all fighting being done by these, these synthetic humans. Like, it's almost like, what if there was no pictures of Vietnam, you mm-hmm. know, or like, like starting 50 years ago, there was no more war pictures because it's just robots and nobody cared. It's just like this, you know, it's like it's a little bit of that too. Like, like that kind of, uh, you know, how are you going to learn from history? If you, if it's all being erased, I, I, yeah, I, I, that was a fucking good speech. It is. Yeah. Good Um, dialogue. The capper to the film is very good. There's one that is equally good though. A thousand times cheesier. It's when Leon says, wake up time to die. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like the, that's, I don't know. It's ultimate eighties cheese. In my opinion, I I know it's meant to have a bigger meaning. I think it's meant to have a bigger meaning. Then they calls it back when it's time for him to die. Yeah. Uh, but in my mind it was just hilarious, but yeah, the whole, like that's the whole tension that the, in that final scene, uh, Roy slowly breaking the superior specimen, slowly breaking down at the end of his life. Deckard, it's a race. Like, can I kill you before I die? Mm-hmm. And then at the la- as he's about to cross the finish line, Roy concedes the fight. 
I think that's, and I, hmm. I'm not prepared to say what I think that means. <laughs> um, and I know that Sean wants us to talk about it, but I honestly, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether at the end when he starts talking about his experiences and being, um, erased in the rain and maybe he real, the only thing I can figure is that he realizes that Deckard is a replicant and he's like a brother and that, you know, whoever gets extinguished, it's going to be the loss of something special and unique. Yeah. And distinctive. I think, I think that's important more, more so than him being a replicant or not. Uh, it's probably Roy acknowledging that killing you is doing a disservice to the universe yeah, in a weird and, way. And maybe my cause too. Like if I, right. uh, if I just pursue single minded vengeance against my oppressors, uh, then I'm an easily dismissed villain. But if I have like this final act of magnanimity, uh, uh, then, then maybe not. I don't know. Cause that's also, and if such- I let you live, there's someone, something of me that lives on through you. Right. Like now you've seen, you know, the attack ships burning off Orion right. in me. Right, 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 right. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. The, the flame that uh, burns twice as bright burns half as long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you burned so very, very bright. Really. So maybe the voiceover, because I, I thought this final scene was when he finds a, a unicorn origami, maybe the voiceover is about living in fear, living a slave. Cause that's what I got in my notes. But yeah, just again, there's also because like, you know, there's a whole bunch of points you can debate about whether he's a man or not. And like the the his handler saying you've done a man's job, sir, like that's in retrospect, pretty heavy handed to. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Like, there's no one piece of evidence like is the smoking gun, except for what you said is the 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 unicorn, although. Man, the metallic unicorn at that, because like I was trying to as as the scene was unfolding, I was trying to think like, well, I guess it could be a coincidence. This guy made a chicken at the first and it doesn't mean (laughs) that Harrison Ford secretly is a chicken. So like he's just makes weird animals and he does origami stuff. And this is just a a, a coincidence like, you know, but it doesn't feel like it, especially when they made it out of metal. Well, I think it's uh I read somewhere in in some article that it's the like the top of a cigarette pack, like the little foil. Oh yeah, no, thing. I'm not saying he like literally made, but I'm just saying that like oh, the fact you're that it's shiny sim- metal is some symbolic yeah, okay. of something artificial or synthetic. Gotcha. In a way that paper isn't, because paper, yeah, paper grows on trees. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you meant. <laughs> like literally up a human couldn't fold that. No, no, okay. no human could make <laughs> aluminum foil folds that precise. They're all robots all the way no, down. It's stainless steel. In fact, there's no, no, there's only one human in the whole film and it's Tyrell and they killed him. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is replicants. They, they don't know it. They don't know their people. All right. I think that's about all I got. All right. Uh, Sean passed along two pieces of trivia to us. One, Steven Spielberg was in post-production on Raiders of the Lost Ark and sent a demo reel of Harrison Ford's best takes to Ridley Scott when he heard Scott was interested in casting him for the lead role. Uh, in fact, Deckard was supposed to wear a fedora throughout the film, adding a layer to the noir <laughs> look, but that was scrapped once Ford was cast to his fedora prominently featured in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. It does seem weird that a man in a city as rainy as future L.A. would Ooh. not wear a hat. Yeah, I mean... Although I gotta say, the collar work in this movie is impeccable. The collar work, yeah. The collar yeah, work. Yeah. I mean, look at Rachel's collar. It's fucking absurd. Uh, sure Harrison is. Ford has his you know trench coat with the collar popped. It's 
but yeah, no hat. It's like Miller and expands. It keeps keeps the rain off your head, kid. <laughs> it sure does. Uh, Sean asked some questions. Why does Betty save Deckard's life? I don't know. Maybe so he has a witness to deliver that badass soliloquy as he dies. I think we talked about that. That is very like. That's why I I, I hate talking about it because I feel like. That's something everyone should get to interpret for themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, like it can be a discussion, but like it is, it, it is the part of the film I think that's most up for debate because, yeah. you know, if Roy was trying to be like a martyr for a cause, why crush Tyrell's head? If he was like, you know, it's like, it's, it's weird to think that he would reevaluate human beauty and frailty right after he smashes creator's head. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's also easy to see where he could, you know, have a nihilist sort of viewpoint at that moment, right? Like, yeah. I'm dying. My creator is dead. Everyone's dying, I, yeah. Like, what am I going to do here? And just kind of give up on this mission to kill Deckard. Uh, Sean also has an observation. I enjoy the role reversal show between the replicants and the humans. Deckard does not show many emotions throughout the film, as opposed to replicants, who I feel show a wide range of emotions. Uh, mm-hmm. What did you think of the Voight Kampf test used to detect replicants? Yeah, uh, we kind of mentioned that. Yeah, we it's, did. It's I wrote down the different questions. Yeah, the 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 the, the, the uh, tortoise question. Um, it's funny because like it's your birthday, you're given calfskin gloves, and like Sean Young immediately said, "Oh, I wouldn't accept." In fact, I'd turn them into the police. I'm like, "All right, mm. robot, right here. <laughs> this this can't possibly be the right answer. That's not robot, right? Like, what the fuck? All of our other questions, like the I'm watching a television, a wasp lands my arm, kill it. All right, fine. Um, yeah, I, I it's interesting because it's so weird and random that like, I buy it instantly as, OK, this is a personality and in much the same way that the the Gosling role had the uh, what was it? The uh, uh, interconnected, all connected, interconnected, except like they had that like verbal test that tasted as best baseline. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Like it's, it's like okay, that's, that feels like a baseline test for a, a robot. Like what the hell would that look like? We don't know. So mm-hmm. making it weird and having a little lie detector mixed in with it, I thought was uh, is great. It's a great piece of future proof tech. Yeah, because this only works on this particular line of Nexus robots. So if we mm-hmm. create robots in the future and their personality tests look nothing like it, then fuck you because they're not Nexus Six. Yeah, um, there's been arguments over the years whether Deckard himself is a replicant. An argument even the star and a director have had. Um, Sean chooses to believe he's not one. Okay. Uh, the two biggest reasons are the movie's main theme is a man is man versus machine, and the final chase is a personification of this theme. It weakens the whole movie, in my opinion, if it's just two machines fighting. Does it does it still weaken it if Roy thinks he's fighting a human? I guess not. Also, like, why? To me, like, I agree with you. I I kind of agree with you, obviously, Sean, because up until like the last seventy two hours, I've I've been a diehard Deckard's not a replicant person. <laughs> um, but I also think that. Maybe this is just 2018 Aaron speaking, but like I don't like portrayals that show humans winning over superior artificial intelligence anymore. <laughs> like yeah. I just don't buy it. Like I feel like there's a lot of room to make interesting, cool stories about that. But like once we get to the Skynet phase, I think we're fucked. I think we're fucked. And there's not all the John. Con- you can have a million John Connors in the world, but that's like having an, an, a million fucking army ants 
against one guy with a match and a can of gas. Like, it's just not going to fucking matter, man. Mm-hmm. We got, like, if we get to Skynet, we already done fucked up and we're probably off to the dustbin of history. So, like, once we invent a super smart, super strong, super soldier, like, it's just going to be Spartacus, except for that's going to be the slave revol- revolt that, that ends things for all time, I think. And I think this movie does well to kind of cordon off the the replicants mostly to the outer planets and other systems and yeah. stuff like that uh off world as mm-hmm. they call it yeah yeah yeah. because here you've only got what four to four to six of these things to even deal with right. so that's a much more manageable thing but like on the other hand they're way off world and they're in these lightly supervised colonies like what if they take one over Mm-hmm. manufacture a bunch of starships and attack ships and send them flaming off the shoulder of earth you know <laughs> like it didn't seem to me that they had superior intelligence i guess you um, didn't think so because they mentioned no because they they you know the, roy goes into that room with tyrell and he's asking questions like uh oh yeah you know, i want to talk about that i, I don't too. like i don't have the answer here and if i did have the answer why would i be coming to you but he had a whole bunch of like advanced knowledge of like genetics and engineering and all that and, but so and, did tyrell and the, that's what i'm saying but the opening More credits so made it explicitly stated that these r- robots were at least if not more intelligent than their genetic designers so sure um, I also think that if I'm Roy, I'm not buying this old man's per, like one sentence dismissals of my scientific theories. Sure. Well, what if I in, invert the tachyon beam? Oh, well, we thought about that and it just wouldn't work. Trust me. Your testicle hair turns blue. <laughs> the and then it's a virus. Would go up in flames. Yeah. yeah. Like he's like every single time deflector it's like, ray. it's like mother if I look, okay, well, let's see the PowerPoint. I want to see the test results. I, yeah. cause I'm calling no, your bluff. I want to see the math. I'm calling your bluff. And I'm cracking your head like a walnut. Maybe that's why I did. Uh, he knew he was getting bullshit. I mean, I mean, obviously, if a guy's not going to help you or doesn't know how to help you, then like, why not crack your head like a walnut? That's, sure, that's my philosophy. The only reason I don't crack everyone's head like a walnut, <laughs> there's something I might need from them. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> the other line of evidence that Sean enjoys is that he's not a replicant in a novel. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Now, that is a pretty weak. Weak card to play, I think, because when you adapt something from another work, one of the chief joys of that is giving it a little twist and having Deckard be like, you know, the, the fact that he's not a robot in the source material, like, uh, I don't know. That seems like more of a premise that you did then have to like build evidence to support than something that's just like a, you know, boom. Philip K. Dick didn't mean him to be an android, so... Yeah, I mean, frankly, I think once it turns into Blade Runner, it's out of his hands. Yeah. It's now in Ridley Scott's hands. Yeah, yeah. And then Scott seems to think, yes, he is. So we both think at this point that Deckard, we're, we're recent converts to the Deckard's a replicant, at least in the Blade Runner film. And although I do think it's, 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 it's valid and interesting to interpret the other way and see how it changes the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fun little optical illusion, I think. Uh, he also had a brief discussion about Blade Runner 2049. I feel like Fancher and Green's script is as good as the original. When I read a synopsis of uncovering a secret that could destroy the world, I got a bad feeling in my gut. But Blade Runner is a small story about hunting replicants. I felt they found a good way of walking the tightrope of expanding the Blade Runner mythos, raising the stakes, but still keeping it grounded in a way I felt the protagonists were capable of overcoming the obstacles of the story. Half of me wants a sequel to complete a trilogy for this new franchise. Half of me says, why mess with perfection? But if there's a third Blade Runner, you can bet I'll be there to commission it to hear your thoughts on it. 
Maybe, maybe we'll see. So I don't have quite uh, the same rosy view of 2049 as uh, Sean seems to. I I really liked it. I remember really liking it, and I remember you not liking it as much. Well, I think that's another movie that suffers because of the edit. Like it needs a much tighter edit. I was bored to tears in some scenes by things that yeah I already knew, I remember, and the audience yeah. in general already knew, and they just kept drawing out the reveal on it drawing it out drawing there's a 15 minute scene of ryan gosling walking through a fucking factory looking for some totem and i'm like i know what the fucking totem is and i know that it's here just show it to me Mm -hmm. that that is a movie in desperate need of another edit and i think it would be a really tight really excellent movie if you did that I think you're right about the length of the film. I'm not sure uh, I would agree with your cuts to that particular scene. Because oh, God, I, I hated that scene. Because <laughs> I, I know, and we have a complete opposite <laughs> yeah. feelings about it. Because, like, I, yeah, it's it's which end of the camera the tension was on. But, um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I liked it more than you. I can't, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it recently, so I wouldn't be able to say that. I am kind of interested in seeing it again now that I've seen this excellent version of Blade Runner, like, to see yeah. if it, it holds together more. Um, but you know, I don't know. Cause I, I remember thinking I wasn't all that invested in the Harrison Ford, uh, Sean Young robo baby plot. Hmm. Like to me, I mean, that like, is the movie, right? It is the movie. Yeah. But I also thought that like Ryan Gosling's character, like, like it's his similar voyage of self discovery yeah. and whatnot was, Cause like you know, if you if you say that the original Blade Runner is about a human that finds out he's a replicant and then escapes into the forest to breed, uh, then this is a the Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a story about a replicant who knows he's a replicant that then realizes throughout the movie that he is actually a human mm-hmm. that he's a you know like in like human in all the ways it's important it, right that, what does it matter that he's been lied to by Robin Wright her his whole life so. I think that is also really interesting and, and a valid way to approach the material. So I, I liked it as bookends. Yeah, I agree. You can knock off 10, 15 minutes of that movie, not miss much. I'd probably knock different minutes off. But, I mean, that's that's a becoming a growing criticism of a lot of Hollywood and TV. Like, I'm glad the golden age of cinema and television are allowing people to make movies of arbitrary length. But I think some people abuse that. Yeah. I, I don't want it to get self-indulgent. Yeah. Like there's, I've seen a lot of hour and a half episodes of television that did not feel like they justified the extra 15 minutes I got. I definitely mm-hmm. felt that way about two hour and 30 minute movies, two hour, 45 minute movies. But then again, you know, like there's movies like the Godfather. That's exactly as long as it needs to be. Yeah. And I feel like we have reached that with this review. Uh, it's exactly as long as it needs to be. It's a, it's, it's, it's starting to feel a little, little flabby. So let's cut it here. Sean Ray, thank you again, uh, for commissioning this film. Uh, honestly, this is one of the very few times where watching something for, for, for a commission has transformed my opinion of it. Yeah. Like I had thought like, you know, again, I saw Blade Runner. I'm not sure which release, but it wasn't this one right before Blade Runner 2049. And I still thought it was kind of a chore to get through this really transformed my experience. So thank you for that. Uh, we'll be back with another commission podcast, Laura, 1944 back before we get back to Sean Ray, as we consider the thing, another 1982 classic. Oh man. I can't wait for that one. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait until then. I'm Aaron and I'm Jim later. <laughs>